Welcome to What Comes Next Live. I'm your host, Tom McCallum. Uh, I'm passionate about open leadership and write about leadership daily on TomMcCallum.com. Open leaders have core qualities that drive them, and four I've identified over time are to be brave, hungry, open, and humble. I'm always inspired by listening to the thoughts of leaders I meet, which led to the idea for this show, where our guest first shares, shares a little about themselves and then their thoughts on what comes next. Together, we'll then seek to draw out those thoughts into perhaps a few actionable insights for you, our audience live and later on a podcast in a half hour conversation. This evening, uh, I have no idea what's going to happen. And Steve, uh, my wonderful guest this week, may explain what I meant by that, not too cryptically. Uh, we may even have a moment, a minute of silence. Um, it's one of the things Steve might tell us about and a bit of background about himself. Um, and I'm fascinated to see what he uh, might have been thinking about in his global headquarters for the last few months. Um, and we've, last time we spoke, Steve was about, what, three months ago, early in the lockdown? Yeah, yeah something like I'm just looking forward to um, hearing from you. So tell us a little bit about Steve Chapman and, and let's go from there. Thank you. Thank you. I, I like your way you said, tell me a bit more about Steve Chapman, because I, I, I'm sort of getting to know him a bit after 47 years as of two days ago. It's it's one of those things that I always imagined that by the time I was 47, I'd have the, a sort of slick ele elevator pitch nailed, but it just gets more difficult every year. So I make stuff. I make art. Um, I make videos. I make music. I mean, that's what I've been doing today. I write. I, I do... When I'm not stuck in my global headquarters, I do lots of public speaking. I do coaching, um, it, but every, every day is different, really. So I've, I've gone from hating not being able to explain it to actually quite enjoying not being able to explain it. So today I spent all day making an instructional dance video using a massive plastic head that I've made for a festival. Um, Yesterday it was yesterday, Monday. I um, I did some co remote coaching with someone using plasticine and a fake audience of actors. And then the day before that, I was I was painting dogs. So I don't know if that helps or makes it makes it more more vague. But yeah, I, I'm interested in in I, my elevator pitch would be I'm interested in creativity and the human condition. Mm -hmm. That pretty much sums up everything. Whenever I talk to you, uh, we always come up with some fairly esoteric conversations, a bit like uh, my last week, our mutual friend Rob and I did for half an hour. Yeah. Um, tell us about not knowing. About not knowing. Um, so I, I'm just fascinated about not knowing, mm -hmm. the, the idea of not knowing. And... It, and I've sort of got known for not knowing, which is weird because people imagine I can actually explain what I'm on about. But if I could, I wouldn't really be interested in not knowing. But for me, it's um, it's, it's a practice. It's uh, the, the idea of not knowing. It's sort of what sits behind our day to day human experience. It's the backdrop to our existence, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. So getting comfortable with not knowing um, or not getting comfortable, getting good at not knowing because it's not comfortable getting good at not knowing feels to me at least one of the uh one of the most important things to do if we're interested in art creativity leadership change whatever it is hmm. 
And I, I, I first came across, um, not the experience of not knowing, I think that was probably the moment I was born, uh, but the, the, the concept of it through uh, an organisation called the Zen Peacemakers, which is a charitable organisation founded by the late Bernie Glassman. And they have three tenets for all of their work, irrelevant of what their work is. And it's bear witness, practice not knowing, take compassionate action. At least that's my interpretation of them. Um, and that's where those, that's where not knowing became important to me, really. Hmm. And I think all of my work in some shape or form is an exploration of not knowing and what it means to be human. Um, in a, in a, what I sometimes think is a selfish way, I only ever do anything for myself to work out what, what's the point of all of this. Very good. There's a whole bunch of thoughts just occurred to me and I'll, I'll, I'll link a couple of them. Um, last, I think it was last two weeks ago, I had Chip Connolly on. Uh, yeah, this is good. And, um, Chip and I have big discussions about wisdom. Also with another friend I've met in London and, um, a wonderful emeritus professor at South Bank University called Bruce Lloyd and, um, about wisdom. And Bruce has written, written lots about wisdom. Um, my own definition is something concise that when you hear it, you always feel, you feel you always knew it. Yeah. Um, Chip puts it in more concisely. He says, knowledge speaks, wisdom listens. And there's something in when I talk to you, um, when I link to the ideas of brave, hungry, open and humble, well, hungry and open are all about curiosity, right? and as well as ambition, perhaps in a healthy way. But bravery of going, I'm just going to do stuff. I'm just going to make stuff yeah, and see what happens. And yeah. I, I empathize with this because... When people, I often mentor people in their careers and in, in moving into coaching, for example. It says, how, how do I do this? I went, well, I don't know. You just do it. It's a bit yeah. like if you talk to a teenager, how do you do Snapchat? They go, you just Snapchat. Yeah, yeah. So um, just riffing a bit. I, I, I think the biggest thing that just occurred to me when you were talking is as somebody who's really focused on being not comfortable with, but there's the stretch zone piece there, but good at not knowing. Um, that does leave space for, in an odd way, it leaves space for knowing. Yeah. Right. You know, you then know what to do. And one of the things that is the, what comes next, as Rob pointed out, is an improv game. You, know, you just yeah. say yeah. what comes next and see what happens. Um, but what comes next is on the mind of virtually everybody in the world, in the Western world, at least for now, at the, at the current time, it has been for several months because we are living in a, in a, place of real uncertainty we have absolutely no idea it's hysterical when you look at the likes of mckinsey putting out report after report saying this is what's going to happen because this is what they know yeah. to do they, yeah. they they are paid to be experts and right now they're they're giving out expertise based upon lots and lots of research on what's going to happen yeah, yeah. they have no idea right. well the, what comes next is um i get why it's an appealing question um and the, the sensible adult logical part of me always wants to know the answer. But it's something you can never answer because you never catch up with next. You, you never arrive in next. Um, it's like Fritz Pohls used to say, uh, Fritz Pohls, who one of the co-founders of Gestalt Psychology. He said, those that live their lives totally future focused never catch up with the reality they anticipate. I think it's nice to have a, like from crossing the road, I'll anticipate where stuff's coming from. But, but there is only now. And I think, I think possibly everything we could possibly need to know, um, is in, in this moment. It's just we, 
we tune out of the subtle voices and the, the whispers and the clues. I've, I've got a good friend of mine who's a Zen monk, and I heard her talk once, and it was a thing, it was a multi-faith thing she spoke at, um, and it was all about the sacred. And she, it was a wonderful thing. I wasn't there. I watched it online, and she said, um, don't separate the sacred and the ordinary. Um, sometimes the most ordinary things are the most sacred. Hmm. So for me, I think that, that what comes next or what comes now is is in the subtle, is in the ordinary, is in the obvious. Um, and it's so tempting. And I say all of this knowing that I do. It's so tempting to want to look for something, something else, some silver bullet, some answer. And it's been the same with me through, through lockdown. I've had, uh, I think I probably, I think I just was in the second half. I can't remember when I last spoke to you. The first half I was on an absolute high, making stuff, selling art all day. I thought, right, this is great. I'm well. My family's well. Um, I could just make stuff. And I loved it. I was up early every morning, mm-hmm. finishing down here late at night. And then all of a sudden it switched. It switched to, to the other where it's, I was just despondent. I was just down. I was just physically and mentally exhausted. And it's so tempting at that point to think, right, what is all this about? I need to diagnose it and then work out how to get out of it. Um, but I try and resist that and just sit with it as it is. And then eventually I'm, I'm in a much more balanced state now, but I couldn't tell you what I did other than to stay close to what it was. If that makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, it does. I, um, I'm generally, people who know me look at me as being very solid and good in a crisis, all this kind of stuff. And I had one example a few years ago where I had a major life change and I felt anxiety quite intensely for a few weeks. And it was kind of an out of body experience. Yeah. Because, you know, people were saying, well, go and get some short term medication and deal with it, et cetera. And I went, no, I, this is going to be a massive tool for empathy for others. And what was happening was I was trying to think my way out of how I felt. Yeah. Like there was something wrong with it. And I went, actually, it was really, really awful for two or three weeks. Um, And that was the longest two or three weeks. So, you know, however, I just, I thought, well, I can't, you can't think your way. the, the, The mentor of mine basically said that fear sits in the past and the future. Yeah. And so this is quite um, esoteric, but effectively, I, I guess what I'd be looking looking to explore is, is what can we all learn from an expert in not knowing on on how to be? And it's probably about how to be, not, not what to do. And so I think what you said makes a lot of sense. It's putting another way, I was talking to someone the other day and about it being about the journey, not the destination. And yeah. one of my friends, Morgan DaCosta, um, talks about no ordinary moments. And, you know, he and I talk all the time and, um, it, it's, it's, it's often just focusing on the absolutely ordinary. Yeah. Um, that opens things up. So when we get stuck in our head thinking about what's going to happen with this, what's going to happen with that, what's going to happen with the other, um, we can forget the, um, the extraordinary ordinary is the way I, I talk yeah. to somebody. I, I was, I was out with somebody for a few hours on Friday. And it was very ordinary. And that was extraordinary. Yeah. And I, I said, we could let this moment pass and we could try to fill it with stuff. Or yeah. we could just recognize that being here now, um, and you, that's where you get into presence and, and other such elements. 
And, you know, I think it must have been just a month or two before lockdown on a crisp winter's day, we took the uh, two thick blokes, took a very wise dog for a walk in uh, in the woods near you. And you and I walked for a couple of hours. And I remember in that moment going, that was an extraordinary, ordinary moment. Yeah. And actually, that's what it's all about. It's not about, you know, what comes next. But I think the learning here is what comes next is is what comes now. Yeah, it's the two. I mean, the whole, I mean, Rob Rob spoke about this last week. The whole nature of how we think about time and the passage of time and now, next and past, future is all as human construction. It's not a an underlying law of the universe the way we perceive it um and then there's i I think maybe it's this search for i i I sort of think our um neocortex our human brain is is both a gift and a curse it's like a mutation that possibly will ultimately wipe us out that's how that's how evolution works but it just seems to mean that, or at least the way society works now, at least in the Western world, so I speak, I've really narrowed it down to that, is that if we can't explain stuff, if we don't have a word for something, if it doesn't make tangible sense to that cognitive, rational part of our brain, it can't be of value. Mm. Then in the similar thing, it's like there's a lovely magnolia tree out there. What, what's, what's the meaning of that tree? Um, what, <laughs> what's, it, it just is. Things are just as they are. And it's such a difficult thing. And I say it, I mean, you describe me as an expert in not knowing. I think I practice not knowing. Yeah. The moment I did, the moment I had any perception of being an expert in it would be the point that I've totally lost any vague expertise in it. But yeah, the, the, the magic lies in the obvious, in the, in the ordinary. Because it, otherwise, if we start, that's where we, that's how we miss the magic, I mm. think. Um, and there's nothing wrong. I, I often say this in talks. I'm not anti-planning. I'm not anti-goal setting. I'm not anti any of those. It's just to realise that they are just a map for this imaginary thing called the future and how we think about that. So I, I'm, and, and it can be really helpful. It can tune your perception. Like if I'm suddenly thinking, right, I'm going to see if I can see a robin in the garden, I'm more likely to see one. But then there's also something about being open to the unknown and the unexpected. And it's, it's how improvisation works. It's most people get stuck trying to improvise because they're looking for the original. They're looking for this amazing original thing. Whereas Keith Johnson, I trained with for many years, would just teach us to be obvious. Just what's be obvious. Just allow what is be what is. And there's, um, I can't remember if I've spoken to you about it before. There's a, um, a big fan of a concept called quantum flirting. Um, I don't know, maybe I haven't mentioned it before. And all of these are my understanding, so people may look it up and read the book and go, no, he's got it totally wrong. I, I, I've been described as having a, a, a Chapmanizing way on theory, where I just turn it into something else. But quantum flirting came from Arnie Mindell, who I think was, apologies Arnie if you're still alive, but I think he, I don't think he's around anymore, was a quantum physicist. And he wrote some amazing books that make my brain bleed if I try and read them. But quantum flirting is an idea that Typically, we, I would, I've looked out there and I've noticed my neighbour's black drain pipe. And I may think, right, I chose to notice that drain pipe. This idea of quantum flirting flips it the other way around, which was in that moment, my, the, the atoms of that drain pipe were calling to me and I was open to hearing them. So the quantum flirting, I, I, I try, I think it's so important in my own creative work and in coaching work with others 
is to not go looking for answers. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that, but if you if you're really interested in something different, don't go looking for answers, but be open to them presenting itself to you. And quite often it's where that walk with Poppy. We were just we were open to whatever. It's the same with inspiration. If I don't know what to, to draw or to make, the worst thing I can do is to try and find inspiration as if it's like something I've dropped on the floor and it's gone underneath the rug or something. So this idea of just being open to, being primed to, perpetually mm. open to, knowing that the moment I look look for it, I won't be able to find it anymore. Like the floating things over your eyes. I think I'm not the only one that gets them. Can so you the say, moment I look at them, they go. Say that again a bit about flipping it around the black drain pipe on your neighbour's house. Yeah. The actors yeah. are calling to are calling to you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's exactly how you describe it, but it's being open to something calling for your attention. A good example would be with someone I was coaching that was, I didn't understand what they wanted to work on at a particular point. They couldn't really explain it, Um, but they had a feeling for it. They had a sensation for it. They sort of knew what it was, but didn't have words for it. Hmm. And just not for any skillful coaching, I just thought, I don't know what to do. Let's just do, let's quantum flirt. So I suggested to them this idea of like, we're, we're just going to walk. We're just going to follow our noses. We're just going to walk. Don't go looking for inspiration or answers. Just be open to it possibly presenting itself to you. And it might not. And we were down on the South Bank and we went wandering into the Tate Modern and walking around. Then all of a sudden this guy went, oh my God, that, that's it. And he, he ran into the bookshop and picked up this children's book, which I can't remember what it was. And he went, this, I've got to buy it. This is it. Thank, thank you. Thank you. This is it. And he went and bought the book and go, I was, because that makes so much sense now. I have no idea what he was on about. <laughs> it was in, but in that moment, something shifted because he was open to it. Um, and it made sense to him. It doesn't need to make sense to anyone else. One of my favorite improv teachers said, ah, oh, don't worry, Steve, you don't have to hand your homework in anymore. That was just for you. Um, unless I want to write a blog or turn a model and, out of it. The, um, yesterday I was, uh, mentoring, uh, somebody relatively new to coaching. Mm. and they're very, very good, and they're absolutely doing brilliantly at it. Um, And one of the things I talked to them about just came to me to say is that uh, they said, I I need to know what questions to ask. And I went, no, you don't. Um, You need to listen. Yeah. And so it's your quantum flirting for me. I'm mentioning this now because uh, after last week's show, there was somebody wrote into me and, and talked about, you know, they want to start coaching. Yeah. And what do I do? What's the first step? And actually, I thought about coming up with an answer to email them. And, and actually, I slept on it. I have this thing about sleeping on things. The next morning, I wake up and it goes like that, like your yeah. client seeing the children's book. And I went, all I need to do is write back to them and acknowledge them for their bravery in, in writing to me because they felt intimidated to send the email. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, so there's people approach me about, well, you know, what's coaching about? Well, there's a level of technical training and certification. And there is the level of just being open to what's happening for the person. You were talking about quantum flirting. You put that, if you could AI that into, or emotional intelligence that into a dating app, you'd make billions. Right? <laughs> or actually... Because it goes into that thing like push and pull energy. If you're yeah. pushing upon somebody, you can't push a rope. Then the energy's not not working. If you really listen, like for me, the best questions always come out from just 
being present to the other person and being open to whatever they present, even yeah. if they don't know it. And it's about your magnolia tree. Yeah. Sometimes, like, sometimes I would ask if you or I are, uh, are coaching somebody, we'll just know, we, we'll have no idea what question to ask. Yeah. And it's normally the moment which I go, I have no idea what to ask them. The moment I let that, that thought pop into my head is normally within five seconds the right. And if I'm really open, within yeah. five seconds, the perfect question appears. Yeah. And I think that's such a fundamental part. And I mean, contracting is a word loosely. Um, of just that any sort of engagement of creative engagement with people. I always think that if in that initial meeting, be that working with a big company or, or anything of the work that I do, if I can't get that sense that we're just in this as an exploration of not knowing together to see, to see what comes next, um, to see how stuff unravels together. And yes, I'll use my experience and expertise that I have in stuff. But I don't know what's going to happen. Um, and it's almost, almost like that. That's okay. And it's, it's funny legitimizing not knowing. You were at the event where I spontaneously did the tent of not knowing. Yeah. There's just a tent in the middle of a room. I didn't know where it was going to be. And anyone that wanted to come into the tent of not knowing could come in. And <laughs> I, I still couldn't describe what happened in there. But there was something about that legitimizing it's okay to not know. And that allows us to tune into the subtle vibrations and into, into the emotion, into the sensation, into all these other things. I mean, I always say it's, uh, words are a, an enabler and a constraint as well. Words are liberating and a prison. Uh, language is, is both at the same time. But you look at nature. Nature's never had words, and it seems to be doing all right. Conscious, uh, when we spoke in the first half of your lockdown, you were in a creative flow. You'd also yeah. committed to only having one call a day yeah. at that time. And I was privileged enough to be booked onto one of your daily calls. Yeah. Uh, and you talked then about the... Uh, I think you used the phrase creative constraint or enabling constraint. And it's been, I want to just thank you. It's been with me for months. Yeah. Um, as you know, I just put an offer, uh, an offer accepted yeah, on a yeah. house. So as I blogged about the other day, I'd have to go through the non-trusting English property system and wait. Yeah. But actually, one of the things was I found that because of my, my business is mostly international, all the banks in the UK went mm. computer says no. Yeah. So I, I couldn't buy as expensive a house as I was planning to because I couldn't get a mortgage. And actually, ultimately, it accelerated my house hunting process. Yeah. Because I had an enabling constraint. And yeah. I ultimately went, well, what do I need and what do, what, what do I have to do? I mean, I, 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 I do recognize the privilege that comes to the fact that I can afford to buy a house. Yeah. Uh, but it ain't no mansion. <laughs> but it was an enabling constraint. And actually, sometimes, I think maybe if you could talk about that for a, a couple of minutes, perhaps with the context of, I am always, always looking to be of service to people who tune in and, you know, not everybody's going to spend the amount of time that, that you or, or I to perhaps a lesser extent look at exploring stuff and being open to, to stuff because that's kind of our profession, right? Yeah. It's turned out that way. And they're much more structured and a lot of people are feeling constrained, like I can't do this, but, you know, maybe a, what, what have constraints done for you in a positive way in the last few months? I mean, I, I, I find it so important um, to have a constraint and it, I only work out what my creative process is after I've done it, which is um, 
frustrating for anyone who ever wants to write about it. Because I, I, I literally making it up as I go along. If I think about projects, all of my projects would begin by a question, a curious question. I wonder what happened if. So, for example, I wonder what happened if if I did the opposite of a podcast, which is where the silent podcasts come in. Um, but it's I naturally do it, and it is part of my slightly autistic OCD trait as well that and I, I want to create some rules around it so for the for the silent podcast right at the start I said it's only going to be 100 episodes they all have to be recorded face to face there is this tradition of the intro and the outro all of them are two minutes none of them are ever re-recorded so all of these rules that I made up um, but it's been totally liberating the 100 the 100 episodes has made that liberating the fact that I physically Travelling to record them has been liberating. It's been up to some amazing places. It's been some bizarre stuff. Like I went all the way to Berlin only to find out the person I've travelled there to record wasn't there. So there's been ups and downs in all of that. But I think a constraint is so important. And this is probably about as, as tangible, actionable takeaways as I get. Um, but when I'm teaching innovation or creativity in organisations, or, or even within coaching, I teach on the Coaching Masters Programme at Ashridge, I talk about the importance of permission, constraints, and imperfection. If we're really interested in, I mean, I, I, creativity is, been, is such a thingified word. I think of creativity, just our ability to experience and express difference live in the moment. That's, that's what it is for me. Um, but create, um, permission, constraint, imperfection, but it's in that order. The very first thing, this idea of permission, is what is the psychological and social permission? Where are we enabling or constraining ourselves in that moment? Be that, I mean, the people can watch the inner critic talk, but the, the, be that this self-talk, this all of this other stuff that goes in there, being self-doubt, all of those types of things, we'll be curious about that. Because once we start to establish that creative permission to be more obvious, to be more mad, bad and wrong, to say yes to crazy stuff, to, to leap, then look, all of these things I try and do in my work, that frees up something. And it's only when we've, and this is continual work, it's only when we've established that permission, I think that constraints become beautiful. And, and I stole that blatantly from Adam Morgan, who wrote a book called A Beautiful Constraint. It's when constraints become enabling. Because if someone was to give me a blank sheet of paper and say, do some art, I could do something. But and equally, that's why I hate commissions. If someone says, can you do this in this particular way? That's too much of a constraint. There's right. this sweet spot of constraint. It's an enabling constraint. Yeah. And, and it'll be different for, for everybody else. But it only becomes that way if that groundwork of that permission mm. has been done of just starting to learn to dance with that superego, that's inner critic, that self-censor, uh, all of those things. I mean, I, I always say to people, assume that everyone in the world is going to hate your ideas and, and get in your way. Let's just assume that. All you can do is get out your own way and test it out. So permission and constraint. And then the last one is imperfection, I mm. think. It's so important. And that is continually using that permission and that constraint to generate what, the IDO people would call rapid prototypes, just to t try something out and see what happens, to do a silent podcast and see what happens. I'm coming to the end of that project after two and a half years, and I'm just starting to see what it was about. I've, I've no idea what it was about until then. Okay, so I don't know if that, that helps. That's, that's for me. The that's actually brilliant. And I think there's, I've had an epiphany from talking to you 
and it comes around the enabling constraint and a, and a bit of choice around that. Um, before, but I, so I'm going to actually use that to wrap up the next couple of minutes. Um, before I do that, I want to shout out to my friend Taylor Burrows, who did her first big public speaking thing in 2014 at the first TEDx in the Cayman Islands. And she had a very, very important and very personal message to give, which transformed the course of her life. And it was very big to say. So she completely lost her lines. And you know how much people rehearse TED Talks. Yeah. yeah. But she also had a mic on. And she was going over to the iPad to get her lines. She completely lost it. And she'd be cued. And under her breath, she was saying, I embrace my, as a mantra, I embrace my imperfections. I embrace my imperfections. And at your first TED, you're only like, the organizer only like 100 people. The first TEDx. Yeah. And I was in the middle of the audience. And the, just the goosebump moment was incredible. Yeah. Imperfections. So. Yeah. Coming off that, um, there's an enabling constraint for the show, which is it's 30 minutes and, it, and it's recorded live. Yeah. Because you and I would talk for hours, as with most of the guests, but 30 minutes is 30 minutes, and it's irrelevant how many people actually watch it live. It's actually for you, and it's actually for me. Yeah. Um, people will catch up with it later, and but it's actually that's a constraint. And one of the enabling constraints is there's nothing for you to do except show up and talk. And I'll listen and we'll ask a couple of questions and we'll see if, what comes out of it. What I've been doing up until now is then sitting at my computer for a bit of time afterwards. I'm not going through and, you know, adding links, but I'm going, here's a few takeaways and here's a few things you can look up. So I'm, I'm going to further constrain the show. I'm not going to make any notes on the show. It's <laughs> going to go out uh, straight to my webmaster in, in once we log off and people can watch it. And listen, because the references you're giving about your inner critic talk, about Zen peacemakers, about quantum flirting, if they want to know more about creativity, about enabling constraints, about uh, Steve's thoughts around what comes next and allowing for the obvious and everything, they can watch the show in playback or they can listen to the podcast. So I'm constraining the show that we actually give our references clearly in the show. So yeah. thank you for letting me be lazily constrained, which I'm feeling finding very energizing right now. <laughs> uh, so with that, uh, I'll leave you for some closing words and then we'll switch, switch off and go about our business. You might go for a dog walk. I might cook dinner. Yeah. Dog walk and dinner. That's, yeah, that's what comes next. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to meeting you in real life again once we get around to it. Yes. Thanks for having me, John. Who knows when that will be. Yeah. Thank you.